Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor at Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we saw Paul discuss how he considered his past as something worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ. After that, he showed us how to run for the prize of eternal victory in Christ. But now we come to the end of chapter 3 as we ask the question, where is your citizenship? Now, I want you to imagine two men in their early 20s. They have similar intelligence. They have similar natural ability. But their circumstances are very different. First young man lives in a comfortable apartment. He drives a decent car. He's got nice clothes in the closet. He eats pretty well. And he's pursuing the career for which he was educated in college. Now, the second young man lives in a dirt-floored shack, has no car, has only one ragged change of clothes, eats a minimal diet, has no hope for an education, and he tries to find manual labor jobs just to be able to make ends meet. So what created such a vast difference between these two young men? Well, in large part, it was citizenship. I mean, the first is a U.S. citizen living in Little Rock, Arkansas. The second is a citizen of Venezuela living in Caracas under a socialist and authoritarian regime. And so their lifestyles are affected by their respective citizenships. Well, here's the point. Like these young men, there is a vast difference between a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the earth. In fact, the big idea behind today's study is this. As citizens of heaven, we should, we must live differently than citizens of the earth. Now, the Philippian believers, they could really relate to this citizenship analogy. Philippi was a Roman colony. So those in Philippi had legal status as Roman citizens. Their city was an outpost of Roman life governed by... Roman laws, practicing Roman customs. And so a Roman could have gone to Philippi and felt completely at home. I mean, Philippi was basically little Rome. Well, but to these Christians living in little Rome, Paul says that the church is is a little colony of heaven. He's basically telling them, your citizenship is greater than Roman citizenship. And just as your Roman citizenship affects the way you live, Your heavenly citizenship should affect how you live a whole lot more. So stop living like those people around you. Now, apparently, there were some in the church who professed to be Christians. Now, you know the type. People that show up at church, you know, once in a while. They know how to give all the right Sunday school answers. They follow the normal routines, but whose lives really have revealed They never were truly citizens of heaven. And so Paul is warning the flock of their harmful influence, and he's urging them to stand firm in the Lord. Two primary thoughts that we find in these verses today. Two simple truths for us to take note of and to live by. 
And this is obvious stuff, should be as plain as the nose on your face. But here's number one. Christians shouldn't live like citizens of the earth. Let's pick it up at the verse 18 and read together. Verse 18 says, For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. So why not live like earthly citizens? Paul spells it out pretty clearly. For starters, earthly citizens are enemies of the cross. See, the cross is the central principle to the Christian life, to the gospel. That's why Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Well, here's the thing about the cross, y'all. It decimates human pride. It shows us that our good works are not able to make us right with the holy God. And we can't save ourselves from God's righteous judgment, but we must abandon all hope in our own ability to do so. Instead, we trust completely in the merits of Jesus because he's the only way by which we're saved. I mean, it's the worth of his blood, blood that was shed on the cross for you and for me. But you see, the enemies of the cross, they try to diminish its value by emphasizing human worth, human merit, in addition to what Christ did on the cross. Well, that's what the Judaizers, whom we've discussed in earlier uh, studies in Philippians, that's what they did. They tried to impose Jewish ritual onto new Christian believers. In effect, they were saying that in order to be saved, you need Jesus plus works. But you see, the cross did away with that Old Testament system of religion. Everything that these Judaizers advocated had been eliminated by the death of Jesus on the cross. But I want you to note here that Paul repeatedly warned the church at Philippi about those who live as enemies of the cross. I've often told you, he says. But I want you to know how he says it in tears. Why tears in the midst of such a stern warning? Yeah, a couple of possible reasons. It could be because of the, the harm that these people did among the churches of God. These people made a claim of being Christian, but they didn't live as Christians. And so, you know, this may be because of the lives that they ruined or the confusion that they heaped on the church or the way they sullied the name of Christ or because they obscured the true meaning of the cross. But I think there's another reason why Paul may have given this warning in tears. Paul also says this, that earthly citizens are headed for punishment. Verse 19 says their end is destruction. Now let me be precise about that word. Paul is referring to eternal judgment, eternal punishment, not some sort of temporary discipline. In fact, the, uh, the word there in the Greek, uh, apoleia, it's, it's translated as destruction in the English, but it doesn't mean simple annihilation. 
you know, so that these sinners are just wiped out by God, so that they completely cease to exist. Because when you examine that word in the context of the clear, uniform teaching of the New Testament, you understand that destruction is what lies in store for all of those who reject God's mercy at the cross. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire where they're going to endure eternal punishment. Revelation chapter 20 says that. So destruction here, it means eternal agonizing ruin. Now, is that a pleasant reality? No, not at all, nor should it be. But it is what Jesus taught. Read Mark chapter 9. See, the people that Paul's talking about, they were posers, they were imposters, they're not real Christians. That's why their end is destruction. So, could it be that Paul also mourned because these people were headed for hell? I mean, yes, he clearly mourns for the harm to the church, but here's the thing about true love. True love also weeps even when denouncing the enemies of the cross, just as Jesus wept over the sin-filled city of Jerusalem. You look back over 2023, we saw people like Lisa Marie Presley and Matthew Perry and Ryan O'Neill and, and uh, Tina Turner and Henry Kissinger pass away. And you know, anytime I see a headline about some celebrity, some person of renown who's passed away, my first thought is, did that person pass into eternity without Jesus, without knowing him? And how tragic the answer to that question often is. Or, or is it? I mean, do we even care? I mean, when was the last time any of us actually wept over the lost? I mean, the horror of an eternity in hell should be sufficient cause for any of us to get busy about sharing the gospel of Jesus. And if we really gave serious thought to what a person faces when they enter into eternity without God, well, that sort of everlasting despair is something that you would not wish on your worst enemy. But apparently, that's what lies in store for some of these citizens of earth because they're enemies of the cross, they're headed for punishment. But one of the reasons they're enemies of the cross is because these citizens of the earth, they don't long for God. They don't long for the things of God. Because you see, earthly citizens long only for earthly things. Verse 19 says, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and they're focused on earthly things. Let's break that down and talk about it for, for just a couple of minutes. First of all, their God is their stomach, Paul says. There was a saying in that day, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. In fact, Paul references that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. It basically was part of a philosophy that suggested that pleasure was intended for the body and the body intended for pleasure. So Paul is talking about those people who indulge in various physical, fleshly appetites without restraint. 
Now, I know looking back at my past, for once, I indulged in, once upon a time, I indulged in, in, in pretty much anything that started with the letter P. Pizza, popcorn, peanut butter, pie, pasta, pastries. <laughs> you know, but, but uh, it's funny how my attitude changed pretty dramatically when I couldn't fit into my pants anymore. Um, I jest, but for earthly citizens, physical and material gratification, gratification that, that's their God. They center their lives around things like that. Food, appetite, comfort, plenty, money, sex, pleasure, leisure. It's all about self. And it's not uncommon. I mean, some people spend more time in front of the mirror or more time eating or thinking about acceptance or success or possessions or you know, thinking about some business deal that they, they've done. Then something as fundamental as prayer, spending time in the Word, gathering together to worship with other believers as we're commanded in Hebrews 10.25, or service to God. I saw an interesting statistic the other day. Americans give $3.5 billion to their churches, but they spend over $150 billion a year on pleasure, including $14.5 billion on liquor, $5 billion for TV and electronics, $3 billion on boats, $1.5 billion for music for young people. Here's the point. When a person has cravings for things like that, cravings that just drive everything you do, what happens is those things become more important to you than God. In essence, they become one's God. But you need to understand something, church. God does not settle for second place. If he's not first place in your life, you're going to know about it. He's going to let you know in some way, shape, or form there will be consequences to be dealt with because you've made something else more important than him. And it's not too hard to figure out what that is. Whatever you spend most of your time and money on, that's first place in your life. Notice what else Paul says here. He says their glory is their shame. Not only did they actually overindulge, they actually bragged about the very things that they should have been ashamed of. They boast in their sins and shame. They pride themselves in their in their leisure, in their drunkenness, in their gluttony, in their conquests, in their sex, in their parting, in their possessions, in their authority and power. And then note what else Paul says. They are focused on earthly things. That's just simply another way of saying that a person is worldly. He focuses his mind, his energy, his effort on things of the world instead of things of God. People like that aren't captured by Christ and the cross and the resurrection. You know, they, they'd prefer uh, Xbox and social media to consistent Bible study or courageous mission or service to the church. Folks, don't think that you're going to become more like Jesus by watching reality TV or listening to talk radio all day. Ain't going to happen. Now, those things that I just mentioned, none of them, none of those things that I just mentioned are in and of themselves wrong. But they should never take a place of priority in our lives. You see, the compass that should guide our lives, the only one that's really going to make a difference in eternity, 
must be the cross of Christ, not the things of this world. In fact, the only hope for conquering the curse of sin in society is the cross of Christ. Okay? It's not your, your favorite uh, Tony Robbins self-help program. It's not a government program. None of those stuff, none of those things, none of that stuff, I should say, are going to cure the ills of society. Not permanently. The only hope for dealing with the curse of sin in society is the cross of Jesus. That's all that matters. Nothing else, no matter how good, no matter how beneficial, nothing else can give us the abundant and eternal life that's promised to us by Jesus. And you see, anything that you hold dear, anything, no matter how valuable it is, how wonderful it is, if it is not held beneath the shadow of the cross, it's just an earthly thing. It becomes an idol in your life. And that is not the life that God intended for you, believer. So Christians shouldn't live like those who are enemies of the cross, those who long only for earthly things and who are headed for destruction. So how do Christians live? Well, that's the second big thought in this text today. Christians should live like citizens of heaven. What does that mean? What are the character traits and behaviors of a citizen of heaven? Well, let's start with this one. Verse 17, heavenly citizens follow godly examples. Look at what Paul says in 17. He says, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Now, most of us who've walked with the Lord for any length of time can think of that person whose life really inspired us to live like him or her. And so we find ourselves imitating that person because we admire some quality, some character trait, some behavior of theirs. Or better yet, as we look at them, we find ourselves imitating the values that Paul writes about in this letter to the Philippians. You know, things like putting the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Things not like, like not, not grumbling or complaining, you know, are, are, are pouring out our lives for the cause of the gospel. But three times in his letters, Paul instructed believers to imitate him as he imitated Jesus. We see that here in this passage, also in 1 Corinthians 4 and 1 Corinthians 11. But our goal as Christians is to emulate Jesus as he emulated the Father. And so what Paul's saying here is not something egotistical like, look at me. You know, he's not so much saying, imitate me, as he's saying, imitate the way I imitate Christ. The way Christ emulated the Father. John Robinson said something similar to, in 1620 to the pilgrims as they were about to board the Mayflower for America. He said, I charge you before God that you follow me no further than you have seen me follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's also saying this though. He's saying there's others, and he's probably referring to Timothy and Epaphroditus and, and men like them who walked with God, whose examples were worthy of following. And people like that can show us in very practical ways how to live out our relationship both with God and with other people. 
And so citizens of heaven, they follow a faithful example, all the while aspiring to become that faithful example themselves. Here's something else. Heavenly citizens, wait for Christ's return. Look at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject, subject everything to Himself. So the bodily return of Jesus Christ in power, in glory, that's a truth that's repeated over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, the return of Christ is mentioned in every Old Testament book except for Galatians and the very brief letter, letters of Philemon and 2nd and 3rd John. Now, while we might like to nitpick over the particulars, you know, of the, the how and the when of Christ's return, there's no debate as to his certainty. Why? Because Jesus promised us. He promised us he would return. And every promise that Jesus ever made, he has kept. So why should the promise of his return be any different? He promised us. The return is a certainty. But here's something else about that. His second advent won't be as a humble baby the way it was the first time around. When he comes again, it's going to be to rule, to subject all things and all people to himself. And so you can bow before him in worship or you can bend your knee before him in shame. But as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. All the more reason for you to decide right now to be in submission to him so that when he returns, he returns as your savior and not your judge. Do you know for citizens of heaven, here's something really cool. When Jesus comes again, our frail, humble, temporary bodies are going to be transformed into glorified bodies. He says that in verse 21. Paul also addressed this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. He said, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we'll also bear the image of the man of heaven. Our new resurrection bodies, they're going to be eternal. No longer subject to fatigue, weakness, sickness, disease, death. Oh, and get this. At that time, we are going to be freed from the very presence of sin and all the effects of its curse once and for all and forever. That's something to look forward to, y'all. And the extent to which we now wait for his coming really reveals the condition of our hearts before him. Because this is a hope that should motivate us, assure us, purify us, center us on those things that are truly the most important. Because true citizens of heaven long for Christ's glorious appearing. All right, here's one last thing about citizens of heaven. Heavenly citizens stand firm in the Lord. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. Now remember, you know, the original... Uh, text of the Bible 
that was inspired and infallible did not include chapter and verse numbers. In fact, uh, the uh, chapter numbers weren't added till uh, early 13th century, verse numbers about mid 16th century. But anyway, we come to chapter 4, verse 1. A lot of scholars think that that's really capping off a line of thought that Paul established in chapter 3, or maybe it's just a transitional thought between two different lines of, of thought. But anyway, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. In other words, in light of what I've just said to you, my friends, be faithful. Stand firm in the Greek there. It's a verb, stako. It's a present active indicative. Grammatically speaking, that means that it's a continual action, an ongoing action. That's what the present active part means. The, uh, I said indicative. It's actually an imperative. The fact that it's in the imperative mood means it's a command. So what he's saying here is a continual command to Christians. The word actually means to be firmly committed in your belief. So Paul's saying, hey, you're going to be tempted, y'all. You're going to be tempted to bail when things get tough. Don't. Stand firm in your faith today and every day. In fact, it's the exact same verb that Paul used in, back in chapter 1, verse 27, when he told the Philippians, live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul longs to see Christians, whom he loves dearly, to not only be defended from the influence of false teachers that we read about in verses 18 and 19, but to triumphantly stand firm in their faith as citizens of heaven. You know, our text today was written as a warning. A warning about those who profess to be Christians, but instead are living as citizens of the earth, living for self, living for pleasure, with no view toward the coming of the Lord. And sadly, there's a lot of people today who live this way, think that they're Christians, but they're really not. You know, when it comes to your salvation, it doesn't matter if mom and dad were Christians because you cannot get to heaven on their coattails. It doesn't matter that you were raised in the church. It doesn't matter that you've been coming to church your entire life. Those things are all wonderful, but not one of them will actually save you. You have got to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you've never come to that mo crucial moment of decision where you've entrusted your heart and life to the Lord Jesus, guess what? You are as lost as the day is long. And I cannot think of anything more tragic than to profess to be a Christian, to actually be involved in the church, and yet to stand before the Lord one day and to hear those horrifying words of Matthew 7, 23. Depart from me, I never knew you. And so, I have to ask you right now, are you a citizen of heaven right now? Now, you can only become a citizen of heaven through birth, the new birth, 
And just as you couldn't do anything at all to bring about your own physical birth, you can't do anything to produce your own spiritual birth either. That's something that's provided by Jesus. The same Jesus that had the power to raise and to glorify our physical bodies at his return, that's the same Jesus who can breathe new life into the spiritually dead. Do you know, he can transform even the most rebellious, hardened heart if we'll simply humble ourselves and call on him. As Paul said in Romans 10, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ for forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, cry out to him. Be reborn. Before you leave here today, make sure that you are a citizen of heaven, truly, and then truly live as a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of the earth. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.